In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. How many stores are on the internet? Besides Amazon, Etsy, eBay, and the big ones. How many e-commerce sites are out there, you think? Tens of thousands? Hundreds of thousands? Well, last year at about this time, some e-commerce research organizations pegged it at around 2 or 3 million online retailers here in the U.S. So here's a question. Why do parents have thousands and thousands of places to buy shoes for their kids, but are limited to the choice of one school? One, unless you're rich and can pay to take your kids out of that public school, you'll still pay taxes for the public school, even if your child isn't going anymore, and pay to get good teachers at a private school. Effectively, you're paying twice. But if you're rich, it doesn't really matter. Why are such choices only for the rich? For the last two weeks, we've been focused on parental rights. Week one was an overview of parental rights and what parents and kids are facing in today's schools. Last week, we zoomed in on the legal side of things, especially what to do if push comes to the lawsuit. If you missed those, they are shows 1303 and 1304, and the podcast versions are easily available on iSpyRadio.com or on your favorite podcasting platform if you prefer those. This week, we want to focus in on school choice, giving parents options if their schools do not best suit their children's educational needs. As with so much of government, the solution is prying money away from government and applying free market principles, in this case, competition. Schools have been bad because they have not had genuine competition in part because of bad systems. The bad schools were all part of a bigger statewide school system that tolerated poor performance with horrid administrators at the top overseeing all public schools, like Oregon, where we no longer have competency requirements for graduation. But this is all changing. States all across the nation, at least 28 of them, including Oregon, have introduced legislation for real school choice. Largely, this movement has been spurred by parents who were staying home, not getting exposed to COVID at work, but who were getting exposed to just how bad things were in the classroom as their kids attended virtual schools. What is real school choice? It is giving parents a portion of the education dollars pegged to their child that they can then spend on the school of their choice. Private, charter, micro schools, online schools, even home schools. This movement will improve America's floundering education system because competition inevitably weeds out the bad performers and forces everyone else who remains to do better or lose their customers. And this is good for everyone. I'd like to welcome Robert Enloe to the show. He is president and CEO of EdChoice, one of the nation's most respected and successful advocate organizations for educational choice. Robert, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Really excited. Yeah, so uh, we have been looking at parents' rights and education in the last couple of weeks, and this week, we really wanted to focus in on school choice, not least of which is because there's a current effort here in Oregon to also bring school choice to Oregon. Uh, as part of that, we had wanted to talk to experts who have actually made this happen in other states who've been part of successful campaigns to get real school choice there. And EdChoice has been right at the top there for, at the forefront, helping this dream become a reality uh, for these states. So tell us a bit about EdChoice, what you do, and, and what's made your efforts successful? 
Well, I appreciate that, Mark. First of all, the, the important thing to know about Ed Choice is we were formerly the Milton and Rose D. Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. So we were lucky enough to be started by Nobel Laureate Prize winner Milton Friedman and his wife Rose. And they their view was very simple. They believed that every dollar should follow every child to every learning opportunity that exists. Mm. And so we started in 1996 uh, uh, as their namesake, and, and I got to know Dr. Friedman this last decade. And then we transitioned to the name Ed Choice in 2016, where we've been going from strength to strength. And our our mission is super simple, right? We believe that all families should have access to all dollars to go to whatever learning environment works. Because if you do that, you're going to have a successful life and we're going to have a stronger society. The goal here is to make sure kids are successful and families are successful and our society gets stronger. Now, we do that in three ways, and we've been doing it all across the country for the, for the last 26 years in this way. First, you got to understand how parents are using choice. So we do a ton of research and data collection on how are families using choice? What's their experience? How are they succeeding? How are they failing? What have been the experiences in terms of public schools? Are they getting better as a result of school choice or worse? So we spend a lot of time understanding what the data says. The second thing we do is you got to train people and help people understand how they can be equipped to better advance the idea of school choice. And so we undertake trainings across the country for both partners and policymakers and, and members of the media and the public. And our goal is very simple. If you know about the data and you learn about the issue, you're going to end up being supportive. So in the last five years, we've trained well over a thousand state policymakers and, and advocates. And so we're really excited by that work. Uh, for example, in the great state of Wyoming right now, the lead bill sponsor there for the Universal ESA has been at our trainings the last two years. And he's taken this idea and the data he's learned and on his own gone off and, and gotten to a point where I think they might pass universal choice in mm. Wyoming. The third thing we do is what we call policy and advocacy. So you, you got to make sure, as I look at it this way, you got to make sure people understand choice. That's research. You got to make sure people are equipped to advance it. That's training. And then you got to make sure people are engaged and advocating for it. And that's our policy and advocacy arm. And so we go out to states and we work with our local partners and we try to build capacity at the state level for school choice. And our mantra is really simple. You got to go to the people, you got to live among the people, and you got to work with the people. And when they, leave, when you leave, the people will say they've done it themselves. The goal is to build up organs for Oregon, not build up a national school choice group for Oregon. Right. And so we do that by coming alongside and building capacity of local groups and educating all sorts of different types of groups. And we're bridge builders, and that's an important part of our work. And so we've been doing this now for 26 years, and this model has been incredibly effective. Uh, for example, when we started uh, five, six years ago now, we picked seven states to go into and say, we want to go really deep, make sure we get to universal choice. Those states are Arizona, West Virginia, Iowa, New Hampshire, Indiana, Ohio, right? And mm -hmm. one more, uh, which was Nevada or Texas, which hasn't gotten there. But if you look at those states, New Hampshire has got almost universal choice. Indiana will have universal choice this year. Iowa has universal choice now. Uh, West Virginia has universal choice. Arizona has universal choice. This idea that parents want more options, that's what we're trying to do. And we do that through our training, tra training, outreach, research, and policy. Well, the effort to expand options for parents to decide where to send their, their child for school, to take their kids out of poorly performing schools and move them to other better schools, I mean, it's been around for a long time, and if there's a good free market idea, you can bet that Milton Friedman uh, either came up with it or promoted it. And in fact, you're the uh, co-editor of Liberty and Learning, Milton Friedman's voucher idea at 50. So why have so many states and school systems been so resistant to school choice that it's taken some 50 years for this idea to take hold? 
So that's a that's a great question. There's multiple reasons for that, and and I'm sure we all know it. So first of all, we've had choice in America for a long time. You know what it's called? People moving. Hmm. People using their house price to determine the quality of their schools. And ostensibly, what Milton Friedman said is we've created a highly unequal and stratified society through this system. So the choice that we've offered families in America through our traditional school system has basically been a segregated by income choice, yes. often sometimes segregated by race. And so this is a real problem. When you have a families have been basically choosing uh, their schools based on where they live for a long time, that's a deeply ingrained thing in our society. It's deeply cultural. And so one of the reasons you have this problem is there's lots of people who have been used to the system the way it is. Now, the pandemic has changed that, right? The pandemic has brought that system to a real cranking halt in many ways because people are saying, oh, wait a minute, now I see what's going on. Right. The other thing is that system has been supported by groups and individuals whose vested interest is not necessarily aligned with kids, right? The adults in the system tend to be the, the focus of the system as opposed to the kids in the system. And that's no fault of teachers that they're awesome, right? It's the fault of the way the system is organized, right? When you organize a system based on where you live and property tax, you're automatically going to have injustice and inequality, inequality. And so the goal here is to try and basically fund students and not schools, mm -hmm. fund families and not systems. And you do that. That's what Milton Friedman said. He said the far more effective and equitable way to fund education is to fund students, not schools. And so the challenges we have, Mark, to education in this country for 50 years have been we have a system that is ostensibly a monopoly, right? It's been running like a monopoly. It's a government-run and government-funded system. And that's just unfair if you can't afford to move. Now, it used to be back in the day, in the 1970s, you know, there were roughly around 75 to 100,000 school districts at that time. Today, there are only 13,000 school districts, right? Mm. And the reality is, reality is you've centralized power so much yep. that you've yep. made the house price such a barrier. And that's unfair for families who are middle income or lower income. And so choice has basically been for wealthy families and not necessarily for for families of middle income. And so choice stops that. Our, our, our goal is to stop that. Yeah, I was going to say the rich have always had school choice when it really gets down to it. Okay, let's go and take a break. Stay with us. More with Robert Enlow. He is the president and CEO of EdChoice coming up. We're going to take a look around the nation where school choice is now a reality. And welcome back. We're talking about school choice today, real school choice, where the money that taxpayers pay for schools follows students and not funding systems. We're talking with Robert Enlow. He's president and CEO of EdChoice. If you'd like to find out more about them and the work they do and trainings they have available, it's edchoice.org, edchoice.org. And we'll link that up on iSpyRadio.com as well on this week's show. Look for show 1305. And um, so I'd like to take a look around the nation here with you. Uh, three states uh, recently passed school choice policies, Utah, Iowa, and Idaho, uh, they joined Arizona and uh, West Virginia, and uh, you had mentioned some others. Uh, and this is really allowing parents to use those school dollars that's tagged for those kids on, on a per-student basis to choose pretty much any school they want, offering a real choice. Uh, they vary in terms of such things as offering smaller percentages of public school per-student per spending. But is there one in particular um, one in particular model that you are especially excited about that you look at that and you say, now that's the model for others to follow? Yeah, the model for others to follow is both the West Virginia and the Arizona model, right? I was doing great. So let, let me take a step back. When we started in 1996, there were some small school choice programs in Milwaukee and Cleveland and, and some old ones in Maine and Vermont. In fact, there were like, I think in 1996, there were six programs in six states. Today, there are 74 school choice programs in 32 states, 
D.C., and Puerto Rico. There are over uh, 680,000 families who are actively using these, these programs to go to private schools or non-public non options. But what's really exciting is about, is, is about the last few years, it hasn't been just about whether a child can access a private school. It's not about that anymore. It's about what's the best learning environment for a family. Because what we realized in the pandemic is learning can happen anywhere. Right? Learning doesn't necessarily have to happen in a building. And so what happened in Arizona is they said, instead of saying, we're going to give you a voucher to go to a private school, what they said is we're going to give you the money on a card, on a, a digital wallet, and you can customize the education for your child. Mm -hmm. You could choose this private school if you want, or you could use a combination. You could use part of it for a private school, part of it for an approved tutor, part of it for an approved program that's online. It's allowing this customization of families to be able to say they learn everywhere. And that's really important because we know, for example, we do at EdChoice polling every single month. And we do polling in Oregon every single month, right? So we have data from Oregon every single month. And what we know in Oregon, for example, is families are telling us, 54% of families are saying to us, we'd be okay with our child learning at home at least one day a week. Hmm. And about uh, over about 40-something 40, 40 percent, 46% say we're okay with them being two days or more at home. It's very interesting. What's happening here is customization has become the, the norm. And Arizona has basically, in West Virginia, and soon to, in Iowa and and Wyoming soon and Utah now, this concept that families can customize their education, that they, their children can learn anywhere and everywhere, it's amazing because we know choice works. And so the model to follow is Arizona, West Virginia, and soon to be Wyoming, where every dollar follows every kid to every learning opportunity. And it's not just a brick and mortar building, although it can be, hmm. right? The goal here is to create a customized environment for families. And, and to be clear, does that include uh, homeschooling too, if a parent would like to just use those dollars and do the teaching themselves? So if a, if a parent becomes what they call an ESA student, an education savings account student, that's a different category. And so the state then approves the sort of curriculum and the providers. And if a family wants to use a provider and say, hey, we want to build, use this micro school over here, the Acton Academy, that's fine. If they want to use a private school, that's fine. Or if they want to say, hey, we want to use the stride curriculum and, and have seven of our families in our neighborhood get together, they could do that. The idea is that if families can become, use this ESA funds and become an ESA designation, and some of them can educate themselves at home, an ESA student at home. Mm. So in the states that have passed school choice, why was it successful? Um, and, and I, I guess maybe a better way to ask this, like that last question, is there one model of how they got there that stands out as the model for other states to follow to get school choice in their states? Yeah, so it's, uh, the, the, the long and short of it, Mark, is blood, sweat, and tears in many years, right? <laughs> This work takes a long time to do well, and it takes building real relationships. And so there are some criteria for a state that's been successful, and here are some of those criteria. One, you have to build real relationships in communities over time. People don't want to just move where their their schools. They, they need to understand the concept. They need to be educated and acculturated to the idea. And so it's really important that you build relationships not only with families, but with all sorts of different groups. In my home state of Indiana, the Urban League supports choice. Yeah, I'm surprised if you don't think that would be shocking, but it isn't. Here in Indiana, it's an amazing experience. They, they have allowed themselves to support choice. So does, so does the, uh, so does the, the um, UNCF, the United Negro College Fund. They support the efforts we have for more options here. We have a big tent because we spent many years building these relationships. So the number one thing of making sure a state is successful is build real, meaningful, solid relationships. Hmm. 
Two, make sure that you are really focusing on the data and what the data means and the data says. So the truth is always on your side and you've got to be relentless in that because the re reality is our current system is they don't often tell the truth about things. They'll tell you they're broke, even though they've gotten more money over the years, uh, every single year, they'll tell right. you they have no support for teachers, except in America. Now, I don't know if you know this, there are now more non-teachers in education than there are teachers. So when you ask them about how they spend the money, they don't know it. They just say they're broke. And so the reality is, is we got to make sure you have the data and the truth on your side and be relentless about that. Hmm. And the second thing is you need to make sure you educate policymakers and make sure you're supporting their ideas, helping them understand this issue, helping them get to a point where they can sort of advocate for it. Because, and this is one of the reasons why school choice has become universal in the last few years. It used to be very focused on low-income communities, which is great. Look, the idea of school choice is it's going to massively and disproportionately help low-income families. Yes. It just will. Yep. Right? And that's, the, that's ultimately the goal. But the goal is also to make it sustainable and survivable. And the way to do that is to make sure everyone gets choice. One of the reasons our traditional public schools have worked so well is because every single policymaker has a traditional school district in their neighborhood. Right. And so there's families already ready to talk about it. And so unless you allow choice for everyone, you're not going to build the kind of constituencies across the state that you need. You need broad programs that are universally applicable and you need to do it in a way that's not very top down. So there's so many things happening, for example, in Oregon right now with micro schools, with bottom up co-ops. There's all sorts of really cool ideas that we should support. So a couple of this to recap. Uh, one, you need to build relationships. Two, you need to be relentlessly truthful on the data and clear about it. Three, you need to build the capacity of advocates in the state, particularly policymakers and the groups on the ground, because they're the ones that are going to be there and do it. That's awesome. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Come back and we'll talk about some of the pros and cons of school choice. Stay with us. EdChoice is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to advancing full and unencumbered educational choice as the best pathway to successful lives and a stronger society. EdChoice believes that families, not bureaucrats, are best equipped to make K-12 schooling decisions for their children. And we're talking with the president and CEO of EdChoice, Robert Anlow. Uh, you can go to edchoice.org if you'd like to find out more about them. I'm going to link that up on today's show page, 1305 on iSpyRadio.com. And so um, how much of the movement for real school choice is is due to the COVID lockdowns where parents could uh, suddenly hear just how woke their schools and teachers really were? You've had some examples of overt sexuality, not to mention critical race theories, because, you know, in that last segment, you're talking about in some of these states, you've been working there almost 20 some years. And now all of a sudden, just boom, we've got five states that have suddenly pushed us. So I th that's a great question, Mark. And I think the answer to that is is what was already going up the mountain. So we, we've been going up this mountain and we've been nearing the top. We've already, before the pandemic, we had gotten West Virginia. Before the pandemic, we had moved on Arizona and, and other states. We had gone to broader choice. And so we were, the move was happening. It was inexorably marching up the hill to get mm -hmm. to the top. What I think the pandemic did is it basically supercharged the speed and it took us over the tipping point. And I think that's for a variety of reasons. It's not just because parents saw a bunch of things they didn't like Although I would argue that parents on both sides of the aisle saw things they didn't like, right? Some parents probably saw schools that were teaching stuff they didn't like who were progressive, and some saw things that from the conservative side they didn't like. Reality is parents were seeing stuff that they didn't agree with, right? And not just seeing it, they were seeing how it was being taught. And I think that really taught parents to say, hey, 
I can do this. And then with the school closures, look, the reality is because the school closures didn't work very well and they kept them closed for far too long, mm-hmm. parents had to actually step up. And we've created what's I think really exciting about this. We've created a common cultural experience around parents having power again. And particularly parents having the power over their education. Did you know that before the pandemic, only 3% of black families homeschooled and now 16% uh, of the number of black families drew dramatically increased, dramatic increase in the number of black families homeschooling. Did you know that before homeschooling or before uh, the pandemic, you know, we were worried parents were loving this tutors. We do this poll I talked about with morning consult every mm-hmm, month. Mm-hmm. And they talk, we, they talk about tutors. How many would you want to have a tutor? How many would like to have a pod outside your home? And we thought, okay, these will just be passing fads. But every month since, uh, since March of 2020 uh, and the pandemic, all the way through, at least a third to a half of families are saying we want something different. And so what I think the pandemic did is it sort of supercharged a common experience among parents to say we can do this a little bit more directly. And it also changed the nature of work. I don't know about how many of your listeners are out there are going to work every day full time. Many people still do, but a lot of people don't, right? A lot of people work remotely. And I think families are beginning to say, hey, we can customize our kids' education. And I think that's, that experience is, is really growing. That with this bottom-up uh, movement of families, like there's this really cool school in, in Florida called the Surf Skate School. They, the families just got together during COVID and said, why are we going to a building? We could teach our kids um, math and science if we teach them how to surf, see, ski, and skate. Mm-hmm. And so the whole school is using mathematical principles of geometry and math around these outdoor activities. All these really cool it. concepts are coming up. And that the same, is, it's already in Oregon. You know it is. There's tons of these things out there already. And so I think the pandemic really changed how families are seeing that they can have power in education. It changed the argument from, hey, you've got to go to school, to a parent saying, hey, I'm in charge here. I'm going to do what I think is best for my kid. I think one of the big problems, uh, I imagine anyway, that you run into is that people have a hard time sometimes envisioning what a new future would look like. They're used to public schools. They're used to putting their kids on the school bus. Um, they go spend the day at school. They come back, and they're, they're used to that. I mean, how do you get people to envision this new future where you have a ton of uh, different educational choices? Well, I see. I think that's exactly what the pandemic did. Hmm. Right, the pandemic did got, got they supercharged. It was already on the move before the pandemic, but the pandemic supercharged families understanding that concept. And also, let's remember, younger families already understand this concept. Younger families customize every single thing in their lives, right? They use they use all sorts of online tools to customize, whether it's Mint Mobile or Rocket Money or Amazon. They're using these tools to customize every experience they have. So why not education? So these younger families are really driving this as well. And it's, and it's not a right or left thing. There's right fam- right-leaning families who are doing it. There are left-leaning families who are doing it. And in fact, the data is showing, uh, unlike in the past, the sort of homeschooling movement is becoming far less religious and, and, and much more sort of focused on quality, right? And so these families are taking lead and wanting something different and better. Um, you talked earlier about advocacy. And as you go around talking to people in groups and, and legislators from around the nation, what have been some of the more persuasive arguments for a real score choice? I mean, and that has, you know, maybe some arguments that have really brought even the most strident naysayers around. So I think there's, it depends on who you're talking to, right? So the conversations that you have with different types of people have to be different, right? But the biggest and most important argument is basically your child needs to get in where they fit in. 
You need to have the power to say to yourself and your schools and your environment, hey, my child's not working here, so I want to try something different. And having that financial power to do so through an education savings account or a voucher or a tax credit scholarship changes the dynamic and the dialogue of the conversation. So the first and most important thing is basically helping everyone understand that my child needs to get in where they fit in what's best for them. And what's best for them may be a public school. It may be a private school. It may be a charter school. It may be a mix. So the number one argument that works is we got to focus on what's best for the family and best for the kid. Hmm. Uh, the, the next argument that works is let's be clear. We know what has happened in America with our system of K-12 schools. And while we, we appreciate all the work that is done, we appreciate all the amazing teachers that are out there, there are tremendous teachers out there. The system itself has created so much inequity that it just can't resolve itself to solve it without actually giving families more choices, right? And in an environment of choice, this is what the data says, which is amazing. In every single place where there's school choice, public schools get better and they get better faster, right? Their test scores improve over time. They have more money to spend per student. This is amazing stuff. As you, as you give families more choices and more options, that all schools, like shockingly, as Milton Freeman said, a rising tide actually lifts all boats. Right, right. And so I, it's an amazing uh, thing that's happening around the country. So I think the first and most important argument is it's working and it's working for my family. Hmm. And that, that's across. It doesn't matter whether it's right, left or center or progressive or not. Right. The reality is, is if it's working for your family, that's what matters. And the second argument, the, the argument that the opponents use, and I know we're going to get into this, is always around the money. It's never around the kid. Right, right. Uh, actually, um, let's go ahead and take a break there because I do want to focus on the arguments against school choice. And so if you're out there advocating for school choice, you're going to hit some resistance. Stay with us. We'll cover some of that next. Back. We're talking about school choice today, real school choice, uh, where the money that taxpayers pay for schools follows students and rather than funding systems. We're talking with Robert Enlow. He is president and CEO of EdChoice. That's uh, edchoice.org. Um, so in, in terms of the resistance that people face um, and, and some of the uh, arguments against school choice, you kind of led into that, the big one being money. So why don't you go ahead and dive in right there? Yeah, so the, the biggest argument you hear about school choice, it's a variation of it, but basically you're going to harm our underfunded traditional schools, right? Well, that just doesn't bear up to the weight of evidence, right? So first of all, we know from every single study that has been done in America on private school choice, on whether a public school district loses money in a state or in a district where there's private school choice, that public schools actually end up getting more money and they save more. And that's the reason for that is very simple. Um, when you are go to a traditional public schools, you get three sources of funding. You get federal dollars, you get state dollars, and you get local property tax dollars in varying amounts, right? So the federal dollars are usually 9 to 11% of every dollar. The state dollars are somewhere between 40 and 60% of every dollar. And the local dollars are between 30 and 50% of every dollar, depending on the state and the location. When you get a school choice program for families to go to private schools, you only access the state money. You never access the federal money and the local money. So every child that actually takes a private school choice program leaves all of their property tax behind in the district where they go from. So actually districts get more money and we could prove the savings. Uh, we have this great research piece called the fiscal effects of school choice by our fiscal research and education center director, Marty Lucan. And in my home state of Indiana, we can tell you that this choice program since 2011 has saved over $1.7 billion for the state. 
And that's been allowed it to be plowed back into other programs like education or like Medicare or like healthcare in other ways. So it's amazing what we know. So that's point number one is they'll tell you that the money is you're harming public schools because you're taking money away. Well, that's just not true. Based on the data, we know that private schools or the private school choice programs are providing a benefit to the state. The second thing about that is really important to realize is the state's just spending more and more money with little and little accountability, about 50% of every dollar. Right, right. As you're talking there, the question that jumps to my mind is why don't all of the dollars follow the child instead of just the state ones? Well, that's a great question, and I would love that, right? I mean, there's it's really technical, right? So the goal is to try and get all dollars to follow all kids. The way we set up our and funded our system of schooling, it's going to make it really hard. So if you're in a local district, like I have, as you know, extended family in Salem area, right? If the Salem Public School District um, creates a bond for uh, and has debt, you can't really encumber debt, right? You know what I mean? You can't say, hey, I'm going to take money for a child uh, that's uh, already set aside for debt and move it to uh, this child's scholarship program. So you have to be really thoughtful about how you access property tax. I mean, I would like to see an entire property tax reform uh, being done, right? Where the money is really clearly fo- focusing on the state and we really separate this sort of capital and debt service, mm-hmm. which I think we're doing in other states. So it's a super complicated issue, right? All dollars should follow kids, uh, but the way we set up the system, it's really hard to make sure that happens. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we have more non-teachers in education now than teachers. Well, right? It's crazy. Do, do you see that happening down the road where all dollars do follow all students? I do. I do. I, I've, you know, in places like uh, uh, Indiana and, and West Virginia and Arizona, when they're beginning to see property tax reform, you know, why can't transportation dollars be allotted in an education savings account? For every single child, regardless where you go. Remember, our goal here is to educate the public. That's the public education I believe in. I want an educated public. I don't care where they get educated, so long as they get educated. And I think what happened in America, somewhere along the line, we confused those two things. We said that public education means government-run schools. And to me, public education means an educated public, regardless of whether they go to public, private, charter, at home, online, or any other way we haven't thought of. Well, to me, it certainly makes more sense that all of the dollars follow all students, because otherwise you're going to end up a situation where you have empty school buildings being funded with funds allocated to students who are no longer there. What you have now, right? You, as, you, as you know, the biggest game in town is, is how the buildings work, right? Right, right. And, and it's, a, it's a big issue, right? And so, like, I'm a believer that public schools should be allowed to sell their buildings for market value, hmm. right? So they should be able to accurate just like a business. If we're going to yeah. have this conversation about equity and, and, and how to make sure it happens, everyone should be operating from the same level playing field, public, private, and charter. And in fact, I would argue that public schools are even less accountable than private school choice programs. Right. So I don't know if you know this, but in every private school choice program, the state can come and turn it off. Yes. With a, mm-hmm. with a, if a child's failing or a school's failing, they could turn it off. When's the last time? Or, or here's another example. In Oregon, you have some charter schools, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to spend a lot of time putting in an effort to say what's your per- curriculum going to be? How are you going to be sustainable financially? What's your building model going to be? What's your lease going to look like? Could you imagine traditional public schools having to go through the same yeah, process? Well, they should. Yeah, they, they absolutely should. should, but yeah, yeah, unfortunately Correct. they don't. So, uh, as far as most of the arguments against school choice, are, do they come from uh, parents, or are the arguments mainly come from people who will lose their funding? 
So I think it comes from a variety of people, right? It comes from people who are who really do believe that public schools are the bedrock of our democracy. That's one group of people. And that's a group of well-meaning people who really believe that our traditional public schools were the bedrock of our melting pot democracy. Any look at the history of education in America would rapidly get you off of that notion, right? So the father of public school movement was Horace Mann. You couldn't think of a guy that would be more, uh, as the Supreme Court said, more uh, bigoted against Catholics. Hmm. The reason our traditional public schools started, and heck, you have this in, 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 our, in your state, the 1925 decision, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, where they basically said no private, no parent should be able to, to choose what to do to, with their children to educate their child. And they said you were going to be forced to go into public schools. And the, the Supreme Court basically said the child is not the mere creature of the state. That is the seminal decision of the Supreme Court that came out of Oregon that basically said, you know what? This is not about um, uh, uh, anti-Catholic. It's not about government run. It's about what families want. Right. It's a big deal. So there are groups of people, Mark, who really do believe in the melting pot idea. And that's important. I, we believe in that too. I believe actually though the data shows that children in private school, the data is very clear about this, The children in traditional private school programs are more tolerant of other people's beliefs than in public schools. Mm. It's, it's counterintuitive, but it's true. Yeah. No, Secondly, I can, I, there's a I can absolutely who, see that. Yeah, I mean, and then there's a, the people in the system. You know, they don't like it, right? And it's, you know, it's not all teachers. By the way, we do a survey of teachers, and teachers love ESAs. Seventy percent of teachers love the idea of education savings accounts. It's the administrators and the people with the self-interest that yep, don't, yep, right? Yep. And so that's the other issue. So there's a group of entrenched self-interest, and then and then there's a group of of, of I would call well-meaning folks who have this idea of the sort of historical uh, glory days of a traditional public yeah, school. And, I, I and think that's those, just not the case anymore. Yeah, I think those are the people that just have a real hard time envisioning what a potential future could look like. Okay, everyone say, well, we're going to be uh, talking more with Robert Enlow, president and CEO of EdChoice. You can visit edchoice.org. And coming up, we're going to be talking about the future of education. Stay with us. Back. This is the Inspired Radio Show. We're talking with Robert Enlow. He's president and CEO of EdChoice. You can visit them at edchoice.org. Their mission is to advance educational freedom and choice for all as a pathway to successful lives and a stronger society, something we are totally behind. So looking ahead, I, I can see school choice uh, being pivotal to finally getting education back on track. We were talking during the break there about these low numbers. Here in Oregon, we'll just say they're horrid and leave it at that. But what what kind of innovations do you see or are you already seeing within the field of education now that so many uh, states are starting to shift towards school choice? So what you're seeing is this really incredible bottom-up grassroots swell of parent-directed initiatives. So small, low-cost private schools like the Acton Institutes or co-learning spaces, right? This idea that you can have multiple multiple education providers in one space and children can go from one to the other to find out what's best for them. Um, OutSchool, I don't know if you've ever heard of OutSchool, but during the pandemic, OutSchool has over 10,000 teachers. Many of them are earning over $100,000 a year because they're basically teaching specific high-quality online courses, right? And these, ki- these kids are going to these courses and these teachers are getting paid, uh, I think it's like $25 a course per kid. Mm. Right, and they have so many kids, and these there's so many unique 
things that are happening. And, and the way we've delivered education, as Milton Friedman said, is the same way for the last 200 years. Teacher in front with a chalkboard or a whiteboard or electronic board now, uh, teaching in front of a, a classroom of kids. And that's not the wave of the future. The wave of the future is kids around a table, kids co-learning with each other, kids in school some days, uh, some days out of school. It's really interesting. So the data we have in Oregon, for example, um, and this is way higher, um, 72%, no, sorry, not 72% in, in Oregon to say, no, we don't want a pod, but that means 38%, almost four in 10 families saying, hey, we want to try a pod right. for our kids, right? 44% of every child uh, in an Oregon is, is looking at getting tutoring outside of school hours to try something different this year. There's all sorts of things and innovations happening, and this is the, cu- this is the future of education. And it's because it's what parents want quality. I'm reminded that we were talking in the break, as you said, about the scores. And look, test scores are merely a, a snapshot of a child's day, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's not the snapshot of, of progress that I want. I think it's an important thing to know where a child is so that you can help them go on the next next stage. But I care about later life outcomes. I care about graduation. I care about matriculation at college or a, a, a career. I care about uh, retention in that career in college. I care about being taxpaying, productive members of society. And I'll never forget, I was so humbled when I first came to this job, we, we went and worked with a group that was providing scholarships to low-income families, the poorest of the poor. I think their household income back in the day was $15,000. And I went to this private school, St. Philip Neri, and I said to these families, why are you doing this? What, is the, what does it matter? I mean, you're, isn't, it, isn't your child needs self-esteem more than your child needs you know, this? And she goes, you know what gives my child self-esteem? Knowing math knowing that two mm. plus two is four. And these mm. families and these, these, these private schools and these school choice programs expect my kid to learn. That's what's unique about these programs. And, and I think that's where the wave of the future is. You're going to see all of this growth in the concept of small. Small is actually better. And that's what's happening in education. While the public schools are going big, the rest of education is going small. Mm. And that's because when we ask in Oregon, our national poll, we ask, what do you believe should be the main purpose of, of education during kindergarten through high school uh, every every year. So kindergarten through high school. 58% of Oregonians said core academic subjects, right? 45% said how to be good citizens. 48% said to become independent thinkers. You know what they didn't say? Fix social problems. Hmm. Only 23% of Oregonians said that the main purpose is to fix social problems. So the reality is what families want is for core academic subjects to independent thinking skills for the future and how to be a good citizen. That's what the, that's what Oregonians want and they're going to get it with one way or the other. You wouldn't think that would shock decision makers that parents just want good education for their kids rather than all this other stuff. Um, as far as the future is concerned, um, do you see some potential pitfalls and potholes ahead? Um, one thing that sprang to my mind was that some blue states like Oregon uh, is going to want to really clamp down and control this this kind of school choice system. And, and one one example that I thought of was that uh, they may require teachers to be certified, even if it's a mom or dad that's doing the ho- homeschooling. What are your thoughts on that? So I, I, I'm going to tell you, I don't think it's a blue state problem, although I think it happens in blue states a lot. This this drive by policymakers to regulate uh, things and make sure, and here's the reasonable language, well, we just need to know what's happening, Right. And the reality is that means they don't trust families. Exactly. And so this is what the this is what the pushback is going to be in the future. Families are going to say, "You've got to trust me to do what I know is best for my kid because I know my kid better than you do." 
Now, either parents in blue state or uh, schools of blue states are going to say, actually, we don't believe you do know what's better. We know what's best. And then that should tell everyone in that state who really does care about their kids. But this regulatory creep issue is a big one, right? You have to you have to fight against it. That was Milton Friedman's biggest concern about the idea of choice is that regulations tend to come into it. And so you have to fight it. So, And, and I think the best way to fight it, the way we fought it in every other state, is to focus on families uh, being successful. Hmm. right? New entrepreneurs being yep. created, yep. right? In, in Indiana, we have over 40 new private schools started since 2011. Wow. Well, the, the it's hard program. to argue with success. Um, but w- one of the other things that I, uh, where I could see some issues is that, you know, after an initial explosion of creative schools and, and approaches, they might start getting snapped up by larger schools like corporations buying up mom and pop stores. Is there any thought on how to prevent conglomeration in the future that just leads us back to where we are now? Uh, conglomeration is prevented, in my opinion, by by the ability of the customer to truly choose. Hmm. If you look at what's happening right now in American uh, consumerism, like with the big box stores, families or parents are saying, I'm, I'm tired of this. This is how this internet gig economy is working, right? So you, you saw this, a bunch of small stores providing services, got gobbled up by bigger stores, got gobbled up by bigger stores, and then people are like, uh-uh, I don't want to do that. I want to buy it there. I can find a new way to do it more innovative. And, and the reason this is important right, is because it depends on how you want to solve this problem. This problem is solved through innovation and creativity and building new ideas. And sometimes those, and cyclically, it does roll up. And so we do need to be aware of that. And that's something we we need to think about. But I'll, I'll never forget Milton Friedman when he did Free to Choose series. He um, was on the, they were building the, uh, the, the dam over the Yellow River, the Yangtze River at that time, right? The largest dam in the world at that point. And he's looking down over the the building of it, and there were a bunch of people, a bunch of uh, Chinese people using shovels to dig it out. And he asked the person who was next to him, who was guiding around, saying, why are they using shovels? And and the person says, well, because we want them to have jobs. And he said, well, if that's your case, then give them all spoons. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. The reality is is innovation and creativity solves this problem for for people better than not. And Milton's – one of my favorite quotes from Milton is – the, the record of history is crystal clear that the lot of there is no other way to lift the lot of the ordinary people out of the masses of poverty that has been discovered than by unleashing the free capitalistic enterprise yep. system. Absolutely. And Absolutely. That's, that's the goal here. And so, yeah, look, am I concerned sometimes about big box things? Sure. I'm actually as concerned about that as I am the charter movement. There's lots of charter schools that become big box. I think over time, though, parents, because they have the ability to to move and choose and have power in their hands, that's they're always going to have the ability to have change that. Yeah, and, I, and I as think long that, as they I, have good information. Yeah, I, I think that's great that as long as they have that choice there, uh, they will certainly use that. Okay, uh, Oregon is trying to get school choice. We'll get some advice on how to make that happen. Coming up next with Robert Enlow, the president and CEO of that choice. Back in the final segment now on the Ice My Radio Show, we're talking to one of the nation's uh, most respected and successful advocate organizations for educational choice, Ed Ed Choice, and uh, we're talking with the president and CEO of that, Robert Enlow. And so, uh, Robert, um, I, I know that we're not going to have enough time to get through everything here, um, so we're just going to have to have you back to focus in on Oregon. But there are two movements right now in Oregon to make real school choice a reality. One is to put it on the ballot to have voters decide. The other is an actual bill in the legislature, which is SB 2560. 
So for states that have passed this or heading that way, is there one of those two paths that tend to be more successful than the other? So legislation tends to be more successful than referendum. Let's just be honest about that, although not universally so. Uh, but that's because the you need to spend a lot of time educating the public about the issue. Once they know and they have the information, they're always more supportive. But you have not just uh, one bill. You have multiple bills to create education savings account programs in Oregon. You have HB 2830, HB 2560, SB 260. All of these bills are moving out. They would provide $6,500 for kids with disabilities and low income. So it's really focusing on the kids who need it most. Mm -hmm. It'd be 4,900 for everyone else. And so it's well, just, and, this and that's how it started in really Arizona. Exciting. Yeah, that's how it started in Arizona was focusing on the special needs kids. Well, that's right. And so, you, you know, you've got all of these incredible bills. You've got three bills on, on, on ESAs. You've got expansion of, of your charter school enrollment. You've got curriculum transparency. You have a lot of education bills in your state because I think, obviously, you have a lot of policymakers who are very interested in it. So, look, I love the concept of, of, of a referendum, and I think the more opportunity you have to educate people, the better. But, but I also know that historically it's been done uh, more often than not. With, through legislation. And, and you have a great deal of effort going on in your state. You have, you have multiple groups like School Choice in Oregon who are working on the referendum and other things. So mm -hmm. there's lots of groups in your state that are working on that and lots of families who are working on that. And so we're excited the future. I think, look, I think the blue states are, are the next wave. We're working in my, my own former college state of Washington state about why can't you provide an education savings account for um, uh, after, not after school, but for um, training. Why can't you have apprenticeship programs be done with an ESA program? Why can't you come alongside the companies who need employees and say, hey, let's, let's make sure all these continuing training programs yep. can be done yep. by you as opposed to by the traditional schools because you actually know what you want. So Oregon's doing the same stuff, and it's exciting to see the movement. So if you were advising Oregonians, uh, what would you tell them to do to help get real school choice here? I mean, uh, how, how, to how to best win over some of those naysayers? Uh, the first thing I always say is get fully informed on the issue of educational choice and fully informed on how your traditional schools operate. It's really important that you know this, right? Because then you can answer the question because you always get asked the question, well, you're going to hurt our schools. And you need to say, no, we're not, and here's why. So get, get knowledgeable about the issue of choice and knowledgeable about the issues of, of, of your traditional public schools and how they run, and then get involved. There are lots of groups in your state that are advocating for school choice. Get involved with them and build bridges. There are people on the right and left on this issue, right? And learn that, that the idea of traditional public schools, particularly in your biggest cities, are actually quite oppressive, Right. And there are a lot of people who are who are on the left hand side who understand how oppressive the schools have been for low income families or families of color. And so there's a lot of chances to build bridges. So build bridges, educate yourself and get involved. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, about the fact that this isn't a right or left issue. You guys had a poll uh, recently that showed that uh, support for school choice programs ranging from 64 to 72 percent favorability. I mean, that's absolutely huge. And that's clearly not just Republicans in that poll. Unfortunately, we're up against the clock. We're definitely going to have you back to talk some more about specifics and what Oregon will be doing. Uh, thank, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. That is all of our time for today. We certainly hope you're at least a little wiser for having been here. Links to our guest organization, EdChoice, will be on today's show page. You can access research supporting school choice, polls, even training if you want to help bring school choice to your state. 
And you'll find additional links to research and related articles as well. Head to iSpyRadio.com. Today's show is 1305. As Robert Enlow reiterated there, it is so important to be knowledgeable if you want to fight for this or any issue. And that is so true. Or, as we like to say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a faith that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a faith that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show. <laughs>